All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. This is a quote from Shakespeare's play As You Like It and you're listening to As We Like It, a radio series that looks at each of these seven stages. In this programme we look at the fifth stage, Justice. And then the justice, in fair round belly with full cape and lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances, and so he plays his part. Please place it in the bagging area. In fair round belly with good cape and lined. Unexpected item in bag. Shakespeare even makes middle age spread sound poetic. I catch up with dietitian Ashling Murphy to explore this round belly aspect of his fifth act. All our evidence and research is pointing that we have the highest rate of overweight and obesity in that sort of latter end of the midlife years. So as we're approaching age 50, and um, because that's when hormones start to decrease, not only for women with the menopause, but also for the menopause with testosterone for men, you know. So a natural byproduct of that is loss of muscle mass, increase of fat tissue. But just understanding that means that to be more aware that maybe for every zero birthday that you might have one fifth less of that slice of birthday cake you know it's sort of one of life's ironies that as we get older we probably have a bit more money but we've to cut back a little bit on what we put on our plate whereas when we're a student we're starving and we have no money so it's these it's one of life's ironies really can weight then cause excess weight cause health problems then absolutely and just to say that that um, obesity and overweight related complications actually cost us 1.1 billion a year in terms of healthcare costs so it's really massive And when we gain weight, what's really happening is our fat cells are expanding and they produce a hormone which raises our blood pressure. They they actually produce another hormone that can reduce our ability to process our sugar in our blood and our blood fats. So really, when it comes to controlling our blood pressure, our blood sugar and our blood fats, everything comes back to controlling our weight. So what weight management it's actually a concept that you shouldn't from the age of 18 until you pop your clogs you shouldn't really gain more than five kilograms in total I'm serious but the reality is and the frightening thing is by 2030 the prediction is that 89% of Irish men will be overweight or obese and 85% of Irish women will be overweight and obese again the prediction is that it'll be sort of at the the latter age of that middle age period you're talking about Mm -hmm. so it's a staggering statistic and um, a massive challenge for our healthcare service. Mm-hmm. What would you advise people to, to eat? It's going back to how our grandmothers ate off the land, fresh, local, seasonal, taking time to cook, prepare food. Um, it's the processed food, really, that we're so reliant. And you go into, into any supermarket and it's largely processed foods. So that coupled with, you know, most people lead sedentary lifestyles. So that doesn't help either. In midlife, it is this attraction to our re-emergence of the importance of what is natural, 
that grounds our life stages within a cyclical rather than linear developmental model. And this concept is attractive to Thomastown native Shem Caulfield. Our concept of time is a linear concept and it's reinforced continually by things like birthday cards and how life is measured. We're continually presented with you know, the linear model, if you like, the beginning, middle and end. And you could say all stories are beginning, middle and end. But uh, it wasn't until the coming of railways that that, you know, that linear time and the timetabling of things and the breakdown of the day became structured in the way it is. But if you're like rural, you're working on a different sort of cycle. The seasons are imagined as more cyclical, spiral, and that the whole model, if you like, of the growing process and the ageing process is a cyclical thing. And um, what implications that has in terms of how we understand where we are on it or in it, I think is important. The cyclical sort of model creates a different sort of, I suppose, understanding, a mental understanding or image understanding of of, of where we are Mm -hmm. in terms of understanding past and and future Mm -hmm. and, and the present. But anyway, it all doesn't end well for anybody, whether you're on the cycle or on the linear path. This does not end well. It doesn't end well. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it can be at this stage in midlife where physical weaknesses in our body manifest, especially between the ages of 37 and 47. They're actually the ages where you will see conditions manifesting, like autoimmunity or high cholesterol. And actually, very often when we manifest these things, it's our body screaming out for something more Mm. than just the traditional um, medical approach. There's something larger happening. Your body's just a vehicle there. The midlife spread, it can be um, a belief that we just accept as well and just go, this is part of midlife but it doesn't have to be that way at all you know when he's talking about the judge or you're the judge of your life's journey and so on so when you're doing something that you love you have the vitality that you will innately stop eating when you're full rather than eating to soothe emotions that you're not happy with somewhere we don't tend to spend much time trying to figure out what our bodies are saying to us Maybe because the health industry is so vigilant with their messages of health checks and medicine. And this can grate on some midlifers, like Lucy Glendinning. I think the most depressing thing I found about when I got to 50 was the first thing I got in the post was breast check. So in other words, it's kind of, it's almost like, you might have breast cancer. Check. Mm. I didn't. I don't want to check. I'm not interested. I'm I'm not that kind of person. Some people want to do that straight away. Some people like to have their MOTs. Every year, they like to find out if there's something wrong. I'd prefer to wait and if something tells me there's something wrong, then I'll go and get it checked out. Mm. So I found that kind of depressing that, you know, you, you suddenly start being introduced to over 50s things and you think, why? I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go and take a bowling. I'm still playing tennis. I'm still running a bit, you know. <laughs> Even though everyone keeps saying, you know, 50 is the new 40 or the new 30. It's, they're just numbers. They are not important. I love the fact that in some, I think, African countries, women don't know their age. They don't know the year they were born. It's not important. They have a name day rather than a birthday. Mm. Um, so they have no idea what age they are. You, you kind of, you, you grow with how you change. 
changes that are experienced at midlife can be hard to accept, however. Like when I was uh, really fit and whatever, playing football and hurling and soccer and all of that, uh, there's a sense of uh, invincibility, all set in my physical self, if you like. And I understand, you know, that age between 18 and 22 or 24, where a lot of young men pass away from taking risks and the risk-taking, because I imagine that in invincibility is there, you know. It's not that it's just a mental thought process, it's just totally embodied in, in oneself. And uh, But I see that as essential in some ways. That, that And I can only speak for men, because I don't know uh, what the women's cycle in this is, but that period for, for men is important for the gene as well, that the envelope is pushed out and risks are taken and learning is achieved in, in that embodied way. And yeah, so you match that with, and maybe 28, with the height of your physical sort of self. Mm-hmm. And I remember work putting big bits of machinery together one time and working with a man that was in his late 50s. And we had a lot of bolts and things to do. And I was very agile, dexterous and that. And was frustrated with this man as he put in these bolts and how slow he was. And now I'm that man. Recently, I was doing some work on the van and, uh, with a younger chap in his 30s, uh, a bit of welding underneath the van and getting up and down out of the pit. And he was walking down, a, you know, a six-foot pit, just popping down. And I was, uh, let's just say, everything, part of Zimmer frame, you know what I mean, in terms of... And it just caught my eye, the way he moved up and down, got up and out of the pit, and uh, in some way I had a pang of loss. These big and little losses give pause for reflection, which is one of the tasks of midlife, according to Kilkenny-based psychotherapist Mark Redmond. I suppose, as I said before, in childhood, a child's focus is very much on the family, the parents. And then as it moves to teenage years, the focus moves a little bit away from family and moves towards its peers. And in early adulthood, then it is an external focus on surviving in society, you know, with a job and uh, getting on well with a job, being productive and having a family, building a house and all those kind of things. Something that can happen in midlife is that a person starts to look inward. It's quite an undercurrent to life, but that can be triggered by certain events as well. Family leaving home, you know, what do you now do? Person might lose their job. Who are they now? Menopause. Things like that. But certainly the shift starts to look inward. And if a person hasn't really been following their true inner purpose, then things might start to feel quite empty. Jung has a saying that one day a person wakes up and realizes they're in the afternoon of their life and they realize the rules that govern their life in the morning of their life no longer apply. That uh, it becomes a very strong realization. There's new rules needed for this juncture and Jung would also say that um, the early part of life is really about the survival the evolutionary survival of the species so there's a you know there is a focus on procreation and it's essentially about the survival of the DNA that that's the, um, the driving force but in the afternoon of life it is about the survival of culture and a progression of culture that the society that we live in somehow is improved There's a, you know, who am I and what can I offer? What can I offer in my uniqueness, whatever that is?
To ignore or not to hear this inner call is easy to do, but there's growing evidence to suggest it might not be so good for our guts says dietitian Ashling Murphy. Very often we can continue on in our life path doing what we did when we were aged 18, even though life might be beckoning us elsewhere. And what that can do is it can reduce our it can reduce our ability to touch in with our inner wisdom. And when we're talking about the rounded belly as well, in our gut, we actually have more brain cells than in our brain. We've 100 million neurons. And and if we don't touch in with that, that belly can get more rounded. And um, it can actually deplete our energy level for going on a completely different direction as well. And usually it's like, you know, your instinct tells you about something. It's screaming at your gut instinct. And we hear that a lot as we go through our life's journey. And but as we we go through midlife, if we don't listen to these screaming gut instincts and continue on as we're always doing, that can also manifest as irritable bowel syndrome, which causes that rounded belly or gut. And there's a lot of evidence that uh, um, is linking irritable bowel syndrome to it's a thing called medical term called dysphoria. So what it means is general unease with life or general unease with life situations. So be that your job or your relationships or whatever. Midlife is a critical period that I don't think we we honour culturally. And that's the thing. Middle life is not a stage that some people get to explore. It might have been taught years ago that, you know, did that exist midlife at all? Like there was just childhood, you worked and then your old age. And I suppose a person has to have the luxury maybe of a midlife as well. That if you're you're in survival mode, then you, you don't have that opportunity, I suppose, to look inwardly, which Jung would say is individuation or Maslow would talk about self-actualization, becoming who you really are. And you have to have the luxury to do that. And of course, there are many brave people that will sacrifice their life just to follow that draw to the people to go on that kind of hero's journey where they really do leave what they have to go to answer that call. If you've got family, then your commitments, it's hard to do that. So a person must juggle those calls, the calls of family and their own inward call. It's it's a a balancing act. Now, uh, as a person progresses a little bit later in life, I suppose they get more into old age. Did you get to see that that thing that was drawing them all their lives, somehow it was living them rather than they living their life? There was some deeper part of the self in control. A person might make the statement, I done this in life, but really what they would have to admit later that no, life done this through me. And it's almost like they get to feel that God, I was used <laughs> in, in a sense. It was the bigger mystery working through me. There would be people that really are following their true vocation, that they really are achieving something. There are quite amazing people, like Nelson Mandela, for example, or Gandhi or people like that. They made a difference. And I think one thing about that following that path of individuation, in a sense, for some people, they really are having to step outside the mould of what is accepted as normal. I think there's a lot of bravery involved at times. I mean, just think of um, a whistleblower in, in any circumstance. They're trying to change something. The system that is there will, will fight against that change. But the person is wanting to stay true to what they believe. And, you know, if they 
don't do that, then they're going to be quite miserable about themselves. So they're, you know, it's a, it's not always pleasant. And as time moves on, um, especially as person grows with age, person becomes less ego focused and more eco focused. You know, because they can see I am a part of this system and I need to do my part. This wide and universal theatre presents more woke For Lucy Glendinning, this has manifested in a more urgent call for environmental awareness. There is a massive problem now, yes, and I, I really feel for my, my own children because we have to get our act together. We are absolutely pathetic. We're pathetic. Um, and there are so many small steps that so many of us can do, but the government has to take the big steps as well. And uh, it's unwilling to do it. And we are heading for absolute catastrophe, as David Attenborough has said, and has, as has the, um, that um, report that came out recently about climate um, we know that we have approximately 12 years left before catastrophic things are going to happen unless action is taken. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult. I mean, the education system needs to be changed. I mean, when you have schools still giving out plastic bottles to their students for study, uh, when you have sports clubs still using polystyrene plates um, instead of using the dishwasher they have. I mean, it, it beggars belief the amount of stupidity that adults still insist on doing because things have been done a certain way. So yes, I'm, I'm a real activist in terms of the environment. For Shem Caulfield, middle age is a mellowing, without losing the spark though of his earlier years. I'm often thinking there about you know, the Jungian thing of individuation. Mm-hmm. Very few get to it, where you take full responsibility, you know, yourself for yourself and your life. And in inverted commas, not so much forgive, but maybe forgive the roads that you didn't go down or the chances that you did take or didn't take or the decisions that you made and all of that sort of stuff. So there's all of that recalibration of a self. Mm-hmm. You know, the young, idealistic sort of person who would go out and stand on the barricade with a flag, viva la revolution, whatever it is, whatever the revolution is. And that becomes a different type of revolution. For myself, I cannot influence the great tectonics of the world and the inhumanity that's very manifest now and that the only things one can influence are the relationships you have in your community with others, with your family, with your your friends, the people you know, the people in your street, the people you engage with in work or whatever it is. And it is, like you could say, the Christian model of loving your neighbour and loving your enemy and loving your... which. you know, uh, um, I suppose it's a difficult thing. And even like uh, motivating yourself to do something, even physically, like to go and dig a hole, to plant a tree and sort of enjoy digging the hole. Do you know what I mean? That it's not this terrible task I have to do and get this done and then the next one done and this. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of more space now and that to be with the tree mm-hmm. and with the hole and with the shovel and enjoy the doing it and I'm finding that for myself what I love to do is weed onions after a shower of rain you know what I mean and taking pleasure on that or looking at the river which I just love the river you know and uh, like most people I spend most of my life looking into it you know what I mean and wonder what am I looking at but uh, there is something mesmeric about it and in some big ways knowing that it is not the way of when I was growing up where that was teeming with life with fly hatches and trout and all of that. And there's a sense of loss in that and the quality of the water is 
as uh, is not what it was and the movement of fish is not what it was in the halcyon days you know what I mean of, of when I was young but um, been able to enjoy what's there now and kind of work towards it in one's own little way I suppose by your actions influence others or whatever in what you do and maybe that is the maybe that's something I don't know you know maybe that you kind of own it more in a more full way and maybe that's called maturation is it I I don't know it is yeah it might be that because I'm afraid of it (laughs) afraid of becoming too mature like an old cheese or something like that and you kind of think you're somebody you know all you have is a bad smell you know (laughs) It's interesting that Shem mentions maturity, as Shakespeare called middle age justice, which takes a certain maturity to navigate. Initiation into the justice profession is mentored by experienced, perhaps middle-aged members. Martin O'Carroll is a partner with Paul Kiley Hogan Solicitors in Kilkenny, and he explains the system of teaching new solicitors or lawyers. We pass our knowledge and wisdom and information from older practitioners to younger practitioners. When you start in, in law, that we all, up, up to recently, a, a solicitor trained, uh, a young solicitor would, would be a, what we call an apprentice solicitor. Mm. They've changed the name, they've brought it more modern, it's a trainee solicitor. But they always are attached to an older solicitor who will train them and work with them. So to become a solicitor, it's not just about books, it's about working in a practice. I think as you get older, you, you, you certainly gain knowledge of the law is vast. Mm. I often sit down with clients and they ask me a question and the, 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 the answer I give them is, well, there's books on it. There's not, this is not a straightforward thing. There are books a thousand pages long on the particular question you're asking me. So it's not a simple question. So as you practice, you begin to learn more and more and more. The great thing about the evolution of law and what you do as you get older and longer in practice, you do realise that most of the law is all going in the right direction. It's all becoming fairer. So often as a lawyer, you'll recognise that the law has changed to become uh, fair. It's gone in a direction, a man-made direction, but the right direction, the one that you think it should go in. Uh, That's the evolution of the law. You also become calmer as you get older and more objective and you become less likely to be uh, spooked by a case or overwhelmed by a case, uh, overwhelmed by people, um, which is something that can happen when you're younger. Mm. I think with age and experience comes authority. I think with age and experience, people will listen to you more and they will recognise your judgement. I think for a solicitor, for an experienced solicitor, that's really the currency we, we, we trade in. We trade in our judgement and say, look, this is what I think you should do now and have the reasoning and understanding of an issue as to why that happens. Extrapolate this system into the community and it becomes evident that midlifers like Shem hold such roles. I have a different skill set Let's say that that young man got up and down out of the pit. Doesn't I have time or understanding or some knowledge or an experience? Inverted commas and big inverted commas, wisdom maybe, you know. And and I'm amazed at that too, that people, uh, some people, younger people, would want to talk to me uh, and get, inverted commas, advice, you know. And what would you do here? And... uh, uh, 
and I'm not saying that older people know everything, but just to put it in, in perspective, like I used to be worried when as a young man bringing up a family with the ESB man following you around the place and, you know, getting the red letters from all sorts of stuff and it's a huge driver to keep going. But now I'm in a, a places where I don't really care. You know what I mean? It's uh, like the ESP man hasn't killed me yet. Do you know what I mean? I survived that when I had kids and they're gone now. And, and there's a lot of learning in that, that uh, layering of experiences, which you can't buy. Respect comes to mind. And going back to the justice analogy, there's a system that commands and expects respect, even down to the attire worn in the courtroom. Like they've had these debates over the years about what's proper attire in the doll and what's proper attire in the court. I think in respect to the court, people should be dressed well and dressed at their best. And the gowns for the barristers are part of that. I think the gowns the judge wear gives a level of authority and weight to the, to the judges. They have to make important decisions. You'd often see in old movies where judges would hand down the death sentence. They'd put on a particular type of hat just to, to reflect the gravity of the decisions they're making. And often when a judge makes a decision, oh, particularly in serious uh, criminal cases and, and big commercial or personal cases, when the judge makes a decision, they tend to be life-changing decisions for people. And, and that's a responsibility they, they have. And therefore the office that they hold in order to make that decision should really reflect dignity, power, um, and authority. Mm. But characteristics tend to be exercised in a sympathetic manner. You rarely hear of questions of uh, the integrity or honesty or objectivity of judges in Ireland. And that's a fantastic uh, quality of the Irish justice system mm. that we do by and large have faith in, in, in our judges and our justice system. Um, most countries don't have that level. We have an independent judiciary. The Taoiseach or the government can't tell the judiciary what to do. Uh, the judiciary don't tell the government what to do. They often say to the government, well, there's a problem here and you need to go off and make laws, but we can't make them for you. According to Martin, these laws are interpreted through the eyes of the so-called reasonable man, who sounds kind of middle-aged. This idea of the reasonable man, the reasonable man is a big player in Irish and common law. So, you know, we ask, what would a reasonable employer do in certain circumstances? What might a reasonable solicitor do? What might a reasonable doctor do in such circumstances? And that's the sort of standard we've learned to judge our cases by. What What is the reasonable thing to do in these circumstances? And it's a great thing. And who is the reasonable man? There's different versions of it, you know. Is that... I think in Dublin we often say the reasonable man is the man on the 46A bus, you know, and, and there's just, he, he's someone who gets up and goes to work, gets the bus, he's not, you know, he's not a high flyer, he's not a child, he's just an ordinary reasonable person. We ask, what, what does the reasonable person think? And I think that's a good idea of justice, it's reasonableness, fairness, equity, these, these are the sort of things. And all the laws you see, we, 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 we try lots of laws, regulations, huge amount of stuff coming from Europe every year. But I think that's the standard that they come out with. All our laws seem to be reflected in that idea of what's reasonable. I think autumn is a very reasonable season. It's not too hot and it's not too cold. And it hands over its harvest and then takes down a few leaves. 
I put this concept to psychotherapist Mark Redmond. Would you agree, first of all, that autumn would be um, correlated to midlife? But that would make winter old age and spring is childhood and then early adulthood summer. Um, there's a danger in that because that would mean that we can only harvest what we've planted in our adult years. Now that's true in a certain sense. If you don't turn inward and answer that call, then all your harvest will be is what you have planted in your earlier years. But somehow about midlife, there is the invitation to look at a whole new sphere of what you can do. So the harvest that you can have in the afternoon of your life will be totally different. I suppose from a biological sense, your body certainly is in the autumn. Um, the branches maybe start to droop a little bit or whatever. At the Autumn Equinox celebrations run by Drew Edimer Burke, a similar cyclical concept is honoured. We, in our ceremonies, actually reflect on what have we harvested this year. It's beginning to look at what has sustained me, what has sustained my heart, what has sustained my mind, my soul, my physical body. And being aware of that and being very, very grateful for it. And gratitude, I think, is a very, very important um, value to have in life because you can be grateful for the smallest of things even in the middle of adversity and that actually helps you have meaning in, in, in what it is and to cope with it mm. so things are coming out of the dark now and ready for storing and again it's a time of plenty and now we have all of this now we need to prepare and how are we going to sustain ourselves throughout the winter and I suppose save and use widely what it is we have garnered mm to sustain us through the year. So sometimes we were giving thanks before meals. It's like we give thanks to the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, the producers who've given of their lives so that we, in turn, can nurture life. And that's by being fed ourselves can we then give to others. And it's very, very important being fed and taking care of ourselves in order to be able to take care of others. And there is that sense that if we're all interconnected, we have an imperative to take care of the world. So the world takes care of us, it gives us food, then we take care of the of others around us. And if we have that strong sense of interconnectedness, then it is not hard to do. Say in psychology we talk about altruism and people who are altruistic, these good people who give, uh, expect nothing in return. If we have that strong interconnectedness with all things, we don't need altruism because it's it just happens because we are all one. So if we're connected, if you're sick and I don't help you, then I get sick. So we just help each other. Help reminds me of support and services. And I have been struck by the fact that in all the other stages, there are many support services in place. Midwives, teachers, guidance counsellors, even Tinder is a type of service. In middle age, there doesn't seem to be that much. You only get support if something is wrong with you. So there's no kind of embracing like there is embracing, as you say, of, of when you're of infancy or of school of this is a great thing. You know, you're in you have your baby group. Let's let's embrace it. Let's enjoy our baby. You have your school. What are we going to do in your with your with your future? Where are we going to go? And as you say, suddenly we reach middle age. And well, it's not suddenly, but it feels suddenly it does come on you. It does come on you quite suddenly because your children leave. And that's a real indicator, um, if you have children. It would be lovely to have a kind of an umbrella group, positive group, where I've said, okay, you know, right, you freed up now, you know, not, have you got an empty nest? You freed up now, you're 
what can you do? What would you like to do? Um, and I know there's a sort of an over 50s group that are over 50s. Um, what is it? In the RDS every year, there's a fair. Okay. But again, you kind of feel like you're going to be wandering around with, um, you know, people in pants and cardigans. <laughs> looking at hearing aids and you know it's it this I just definitely don't feel that there's there's no nice easy positive way that you're that you're moving into that into this part of our lives yeah like Shem Lucy struggled with the physical changes that manifested in her middle age in terms of physical changes yes that happens and it's hard like when the flushes hit you if they hit you that's really tough. I mean, when I got them first, I started them in my early, in my mid-40s, and I'm in my mid-50s now. But mine were, they would start at my toes, and they would move all the way up to the top of my head. I would be sitting here with you, and you would suddenly see me removing clothes. I couldn't wear a dress, because obviously I couldn't remove a whole dress. <laughs> so I went through the stage of not being able to wear dresses, because you have to literally take, you have to go down to vest, you get so hot and then of course you're frozen because you're covered in sweat and it's dripping off you and then you have to try and put everything back on again mm-hmm. so and, and this would happen like if we were sitting here now over this course I would probably have done it three or four times already and so that that went on for a long time and that's kind it's kind of wearing yeah. so that was really hard that's really gone down now but then there's the dryness starts there's all kinds of other things that start as well you you, you literally start drying out and then you start you can get itchy and you can get uncomfortable in very uncomfortable places which people never tell you about and that is really horrible because that's you can't talk to people about that you don't know where to go you know if you go to your doctor as lovely as your doctor is they will give you steroid creams Mm -hmm. and if you're not of that mindset you don't want to do that and and there are very few alternatives it's embarrassing talking about these things and I'm sure it's the same for men Mm -hmm. but as I say I'll just talk from a woman's point of view it would be lovely if you know when you got 50 or or you know or not as a particular age but if there was something if there was some place that said you know I don't know, the wise woman ways or something that embrace these things. I mean, one of the positives about the, the hot flushes were I used to sit in the, in the winter and I think if the kitchen was cold, will I put on the heating or will I just wait for a flash? Because that'll heat me up for a good while. <laughs> so, you know, there's always something positive to get me gained from these things. You know, I used to be fit. I used to, you know... Uh, be able to go on dates with girls, if you know what I mean, or not saying that you know what I mean. You, you don't, but you were at a certain sort of level of uh, engagement and part of society in a way, and um, not so much important, but you felt that you were intrinsic in it. And the middle age is about moving, is kind of letting go of that in some sort of way, and coming to terms with that yourself, which is a terrible and awful thing. I do think for me that. You kind of have to do it like most things on your own, you know, that uh, is coming to terms with that. And in some way, I don't know if the word rationalise is is a thing, but coming to terms may not be the way of understanding it either. Coming to terms seems like kind of fatal, that this is a slow ebbing and rising of a tide. You know what I mean? It's that I can't think of a proper metaphor for the one that fits. And sometimes I imagine it as a series of little griefs or big griefs that are kind of losses. And in those losses, I'm sure there are gains as well, you know. And uh, the rest of the time we'll be sort of mining those gains, whatever they are. (laughs) 
I really resent the anti-aging um, marketing stuff. I cannot bear it. We're aging from the day we're born. And um, it's awful to, to be given as a present, say, or in, in, a, in a hamper or something you win, an anti-aging serum. What's that about? I mean, anti-aging? You can't stop aging. Um, and why would you want to? You don't stop a tree aging. You don't stop your animals aging. You don't stop your children aging. You know, why would you want to stop your, 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 yourself aging? And it's, it's such a wrong way of going about it. Um, and, and again, it's sort of, it comes in, you know, you're, you're again with your middle age um, and, and suddenly you're supposed to be trying to make yourself look younger. Yeah. Why? Why? I don't get that at all. So um, anti-aging stuff bugs me. Mm. You're not going to get rid of wrinkles. I mean, we are all going to get old. Mm. That's just a fact. End of story. In one metaphor, you might say the dimming of the light. and uh, the other, it might be the polishing of the diamond. But the thing is, like, these are methodologies and methods of, you know, surviving and going on. Why should you go on? You know what I mean? These are big existential existential questions. You know, you put your feet on the floor in the morning and what motivates you to go out and weed the onions, you know? If they don't get wet, there's no one going to be, no onions going to be crying at your door, you know? <laughs> so, uh, and then finding that, which I find really interesting world, um, you know, in Waiting for God, oh, I did, I was part of a play one time and did, did God, oh, and uh, I remember Estrogen saying, I think it was Estrogen saying, uh, sort of, I'll go on. And we all have that ability, and that's what I just love human beings in that sense. You know, I'll go on. Mm-hmm. I just keep going, you know. And I do know in, in the, if I could, in the, in the creative process, that, you know, there's a number of stages that I would have identified. Stage one, great idea, you know, I'm working on this, and, blah, 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 and it's going great, and whatever it is. And then you start doing things to it, and that great idea gets muddled up and messed up and kind of fecked up. And then frustration comes in. And then that super ego comes in. Why the fuck did you start this? You know, you're no good. You know what I mean? You can't do this. You should have. Uh, and uh, look at the state of it now. It's not going to be. And this is part of the creative process. And you could use it for any other and a lot of other processes. But some people give up there. At that stage, that, that super critical self comes in and, and does that. Mm-hmm. But if you push through that and keep with it and finding ways, but it pushes through like a, like a, I won't say a birthing canal, but an aperture where it pushes out and there it is, the, the created thing, yeah. you know. And it's like you have to go through that the whole time. Yeah. So in some ways, maybe at the stage I am now or whatever is, it's coming to a different relationship with that voice, you know. Like, it's all right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So what? The chimney is crooked. But isn't it a lovely crooked? You know what I mean? <laughs> As we mature and get to our midlife years, it becomes evident that those who cared for and looked after us when we were younger are also ageing. I suppose another task that comes in midlife is, um, for some people, is the task of adjusting to their ageing parents. And they're perhaps at the same time have their own maturing children and they're leaving the home or whatever but they're in a phase where they're perhaps having to care more for their parents as well they've got that extra responsibility but adjusting to that there's nobody really there anymore to care for them that can be quite um, an interesting transition for people 
Lucy's at that stage with her 94-year-old dad living in Cork. I mean, he's great, but his memory's getting worse and worse. And, and, you know, you get to the stage, you're wondering, can he live with us? Can he live with my sister? Should we even be thinking about trying to move him? He's saying he's fine, but is he eating when we're not there? We we, but we know he stuffs himself when we take him out for lunch and he always got to, got, loves to go out to lunch. But he's really deaf and then he stood on his hearing aid and, and then we have to get a new hearing aid and my sister has a full-time job and she's hoping that I'll come down to help and, and I will. So that's, that's another huge part of, of our lives as we're going into middle age where we're getting a little bit more tired. It's quite funny because I was saying if when we were thinking about my dad coming to live with us, I was thinking, oh, my son moves out. My father moves in, you know, and suddenly you're having to deal with, you know, look at someone you looked up to all your life who did things for you. And suddenly you might have to be doing those things for them. And if you come from a family, which is what I did, a very undemonstrative type people where we didn't hug and kiss even really, the thoughts of even having to do any of the, you know, things like, I don't know, shaving or helping him wash or anything... That just fills me with total dread. Mm. And I'm sure some, some families are fantastic at dealing with it and, and, and others aren't. And we just want him to stay in his home as long as he possibly can because he's happy there. But at the same time, you want him to be safe. Mm. It gets more difficult. It gets more difficult by the week because particularly when they're at the stage where the memory is starting to go, um, the memory, it doesn't come back and... And you can kind of have quite fun conversations, like Groundhog Day. You approach it from different angles. If you don't like the way a conversation is going, you think, okay, I'll just start again in a few minutes and we'll come from a completely different angle and I'll get him on my side. So, you know, and that's what you do. And my sister does that too, because there is absolutely no point in being impatient with a person whose memory is gone. There is no point in telling them that they've told you that already and getting angry because they don't remember, you know. So you've got you to find the funny side in it. A sense of humour must be one of the byproducts of midlife. In fact, it could be added as one of the tasks because society will more than likely make it difficult for a midlifer to achieve their potential. It's a sort of a spiritual awakening in, in a sense. The question is, do, do many people really do that nowadays? Consumerism really fights to maintain its hold on the person and that they do stay part of you know, a, a functioning consumerist rather than being a functioning member of society. So there's a lot of draws there to prevent us looking inward. So it's very difficult nowadays. But as I said, it's very difficult if you've got a mortgage on, stuck over your head and you're a lot of commitments. It's, um, it's hard. And what makes it harder is our fear. You know, I remember Marilyn Manson in that film Bowling for Columbine said the truest thing I've ever heard. And I, something I kind of knew but didn't. He said, they're all afraid of me, you know, because I'm outside the box a bit. But he's saying, this country is one run on fear. And you have insurance companies filling that fear gap. And the creation of fear and anxiety in media or, you know, on the television. If you don't have this, you don't have that, and this body and that body and this house and that car and this. Uh, and uh, that needs to be counteracted, you know what I mean? That uh, the fear and anxiety and you go and buy this for that and this or that. And I've just found myself, again, you know, I don't need a whole lot. I might want a few things. I'd love, you know, I'd love to win the lot. Or maybe I wouldn't. I would, definitely, because I you would. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I'm not kind of driven by wants. You know, well, God, there he says that. 
sure they'll, everybody I know is probably saying that dirty liar. <laughs> but uh, uh, shiny things are not that important. Yeah. Like, God, I'm seeing like a great fella now. I wish I knew that fella I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't recognise him at all. <laughs> And so, according to Shakespeare's analogy in his play, we move to the next act. And in the second last programme in this series, we focus on old age. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side. His youthful hose, well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice turns towards childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. As We Like It was produced by Monica Hayes and made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.